Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Crime in Britain is broadly on a downward trend. One offense, though, is clearly on the up. Shoplifting. It's getting more organized, more brazen, and it doesn't have as much to do with inflation and costs of living as you might think. And Dave Portnoy first made his name when he started Barstool Sports two decades ago. But it's his one-bite reviews on YouTube that have made him the unlikely kingmaker of American pizza. First up, though. Proceedings today are going to bring up some sour memories for thousands of cryptocurrency investors. Last November, the crypto exchange FTX underwent a spectacular failure. Is this the Lehman moment for crypto? That's the question some in the industry are now asking, as leading cryptocurrency exchange FTX faces bankruptcy. Billions of dollars just disappeared, hitting big-shot investors and small fry alike. The founder and figurehead of FTX, Sam Bankman-Fried, widely and once chummily known as SBF, was arrested back in January. FTX founder Sam Bankman-Fried arrested in the Bahamas, set to face a judge this morning after U.S. prosecutors filed criminal charges in connection with the multi-billion dollar collapse of his crypto company. And his days in court are about to begin in New York as a jury is selected. Sam Bankman-Fried is a former crypto billionaire who faces charges that could lead to him spending up to a century in prison. Henry Trix writes Schumpeter, our column on business. It's just a spectacular fall from grace for a guy who was the world's richest man under the age of 30 and now finds himself alleged to be the mastermind of the biggest fraud of the crypto era. So what are the details on on the charges that he's facing? There are seven charges that he faces, and these include multiple counts of fraud, of misappropriating clients' money. He's charged with conspiracy to commit money laundering. And really behind it all is an accusation that he defrauded many of the world's biggest investors and other customers via the cryptocurrency exchange that he created called FTX. This has led to accusations that essentially he stole billions of dollars that people gave to him to invest in crypto. U.S. prosecutors are calling these alleged actions one of the biggest financial frauds in American history, although it must be pointed out that Mr. Bankman-Fried 
denies these allegations and pleads not guilty. So how did he convince so many of these very smart, very rich people to part with their money? He is a very clever, intriguing character. I've just finished reading a new book by the financial writer Michael Lewis, who spent more than a year with Mr. Bankman Freed and describes how his subject had to actually teach himself how to smile in order to engage with people at work. And yet he developed this oddly magnetic personality, which enabled him to bring lots of people into his orbit to convince them in his ventures. In this book, what comes across is his extraordinary hyper-rationality. It sets him apart from almost everyone. He views people not as good or bad or brave or cowardly, but as probability distributions around a mean. And he took this hyper-rationality approach to business. He basically became a genius at spotting statistical anomalies in different markets around the world. And he applied that skill to cryptocurrencies. And that made him a billionaire in an extraordinary short period of time. So how did it all come apart then? How did the hyper-rationality reveal itself as not very effective? Well, it was really an incredibly quick downfall. It became apparent in November of 2022 that large buckets of money that had been deposited on the FTX exchange had gone missing. And up to almost $7 billion appears still to be unaccounted for, though the question of the missing money will surely be assessed by the court. The new CEO of FTX, John Ray, who was brought in on behalf of creditors after it filed for bankruptcy, he's described the record-keeping in FTX as the worst he's ever seen. Uh, the issue here that I was speaking to is I've just never seen an utter lack of record-keeping. Uh, absolutely no internal controls whatsoever. The nub of the problem is that this money that customers of FTX had deposited on the exchange in order to trade cryptocurrencies was mysteriously put into a hedge fund that Mr. Bankman-Fried also controlled. And the allegation is that he misappropriated that money for his own ends. And so the trial then will be about how the money moved around and, and when and, and who's on the hook for it. It's a mess out there. And prosecutors are going to have to sift through a lot of very complicated paper trails. Working against Mr. Bankman-Fried is the fact that some of his closest friends, his colleagues and his ex-girlfriend, are expected to testify to explain how he improperly channeled sums of money held on FTX into that other crypto trading firm that he controlled, which was Alameda Research. For instance, his ex-girlfriend, Caroline Ellison, who was the former chief of Alameda, she must know, as well as he does, what happens to some of the money. 
that said, their testimony and their role in the affair is bound to be challenged by Mr. Bankman-Fried. There were intense personal relationships going on here. And so do we have a sense for what kind of defence he's going to mount? Mr. Bankman-Fried has been clear pretty much from the start that he made a massive mistake, but he didn't intend to defraud. He's claimed that he didn't know the details of what happened at his companies and that, you know, this money just sort of went astray. And the defence can indeed fall back on the complexity of FTX and of cryptocurrencies in general. Prosecutors have never really taken on a case like this. As we've seen, it's hugely complex. But that said, he has a lot facing him And the prosecutors only need one of the charges to stick for him to potentially end up in prison. And Henry, I know that you're going to be speaking a lot more about this on Money Talks, our sister show on business and finance. Yes, I will be on the show next week alongside Michael Lewis, who you'll probably know as a financial author. He wrote the book Liar's Poker about Wall Street in the 1980s. And he also wrote the book The Big Short, which was turned into a blockbuster movie. And he's written this insider account of the whole affair that I mentioned earlier. So I'll be interested to talk to him when he's on the show. And you can read my review of his book on our website, economist.com. Not just The Big Short, but also Moneyball. Oh, that's true. Yes, yes. Well, Henry, I will keep my ears out for that for the moment. Thank you very much for your time. Great talking to you, Jason. Thank you. Now, you probably know what I'm going to say about hearing more from Henry on Money Talks. From later this month, if you want to listen to that and all of our weekly shows, you're going to need to sign up for our new subscription, Economist Podcasts Plus. That'll also get you access to lots of subscriber-only stuff from my award-winning colleagues on the Economist Podcasts team, including Boss Class, a new short series on management from our most popular columnist. If you're already a subscriber to The Economist, don't worry, you're already in. If not, get yourself a sweet deal by signing up to our podcast subscription early. Over the next two weeks only, you can get a whole year's worth of Economist Podcasts Plus for $24.50, two bucks or pounds or euros a month. Trust me, it's going to be worth that and more. There's even going to be a weekend edition of The Intelligence. Head to the link in the show notes or just search Economist Podcasts to find out more. I used to go in, dress smart, no bags. I'd just go in looking quite casual. I'd always purchase something whilst I was in there, even if it cost 50p for a pack of chewing gums. Cullen Mace is a former shoplifter. He says he used to steal £2,000 worth, $2,400 worth of goods a day to fund his heroin addiction. Typical day of shoplifting would include planning my destination the day before, getting up early, getting on the motorway, getting to our location, and then what we would do is work our way back down to Cardiff, hitting every valley, village, town, whatever we could, until the car was full. As soon as we get home, we'd ring up some of our contacts who would buy in bulk and sell it all. As soon as I've sold it, I'm going straight to my drug dealer, I'm locking up in a flat and I'm starting all over again in the morning. Colin now works for an organisation that helps addicts. 
but while he's no longer shoplifting, the number of those who are is growing. So Britain is in the middle of an era of falling crime generally. There are a couple of crimes that are bucking that trend, and one of them is shoplifting. Mian Ridge is a Britain correspondent for The Economist. There's been a 24% increase in reported incidents of shoplifting in the year to March 2023. And that actually continues an upward trend that's been seen since about 2013. So there's clearly a big rise, but what, what are these sort of absolute numbers? Let's put some numbers to it. So last year, the police reported 342,000 cases of shoplifting, which will be a drop in the ocean of the total number. There will be far more incidents than that that are never reported. In one respect, though, this is a correction. It's a return to something like the levels of shoplifting that were seen during the pandemic when Britons were locked down, they weren't able to go shopping, let alone shoplift. But the British Retail Consortium makes it out to be slightly more dramatic than this. It warns that it's soaring across the country, and that's a line that's repeated by individual retailers. The British Retail Consortium also says that in some cities it's increased in the last year by as much as 68%. But if broadly other crimes are falling, it's, it's tempting to imagine that uh, a rise in shoplifting has something to do with just soaring costs of living. So no one really knows who is shoplifting and why. But anecdotally, and that includes anecdotes from academics who are studying this phenomenon, it seems that the cost of living crisis actually only plays a pretty small part. Most shoplifters seem to be repeat sort of petty offenders with drug or alcohol problems who are being given shoplifting lists by organised criminals and thieves quite often seem to be stealing to order after getting a list from a criminal gang because the popular items often include alcohol, baby formula, confectionery and meat which some shops say are being swiped in bulk clearly to be sold elsewhere. This may have been made easier by a change to the law in 2014, which meant that low-level shoplifting, that is, of items worth less than £200, could be tried in magistrates' courts, not the Crown Court. And it seems that that probably stopped or deterred police from investigating these sorts of crimes. But it seems if this is going on the other, the police ought to be more involved, not less. Well, some forces are trying to be innovative in dealing with shoplifting. Nottingham Police, for example, draws up these most wanted lists of shoplifters. And for each person on the list, they draw up a criminal behaviour order, which aims to tackle the causes of their shoplifting. So that most commonly would mandate drug or alcohol treatment. But what the police should do, there's no question, is focus particularly on the rise in aggressive shoplifting. Shopkeepers are much less likely to confront shoplifters these days because of threats of violence and indeed some violence. But I should add here that only something like 2% of all crimes of any sort are likely to lead to convictions and it may be even lower for shoplifting. So that indicates that stopping the crime from happening in the first place is probably more effective. So if stopping it is part of the key here, then what are shops to do to prevent it happening? I think a lot of it is about design. So shops that have lots of goods and automated checkouts make very tempting opportunities for criminals to swipe a lot of stuff. So some simple, sensible things are to place high-value items a long way from the door, put security tags on items that are likely to be stolen, arrange aisles so that staff can see more easily down them, And one other policy, which is generally something that's used in high-end shops, is to meet shoppers at the door. That makes potential criminals, I think, a lot less likely to steal things. But it doesn't happen very commonly at the moment because obviously you need staff to do it. It seems a shame almost that the policy prescription here is design your stores differently rather than tackle the problem directly. 
I think it's worth bearing in mind that the rise in shoplifting is actually in some ways reflective of a positive development in Britain, which is that lots of crime is on the decrease. And one crime that has been in decline for about 20 years is house burglaries. And so it's likely that some of the gangs that used to organise those sorts of crimes have been diverted to shoplifting. So it's not an entirely depressing tale. Mian, thanks very much for your time. Thanks very much, Jason. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. In Everyone by Pizza Review, Dave Portnoy goes to a pizzeria, orders a pie, stands out front of the shop, says his catchphrase, which is one bite, everyone knows the rules. And then after taking definitely more than one bite, he rates the pizza on a score from zero to ten. All right, Frankie, uh, where, where are we? I don't even know. I think Melbourne, Florida, something like that. Uh, Chuck E. Cheese. The reviews have been hugely popular online. They've been viewed nearly 700 million times on YouTube since he started making them in 2015. Max Norman is a culture correspondent for The Economist and contributes to World in a Dish, our column on food. Dave Portnoy is the center of the pizza review. He founded Barstool Sports about 20 years ago. It started as a broadsheet that he handed out in Boston. It's grown into a huge online community known for its rowdiness and maleness. But there's also another side to Portnoy. He has been a frequent guest on Tucker Carlson. During the pandemic, he went and raged against Dr. Anthony Fauci and on the way COVID was handled. He's also been accused of misogyny and racism and various cases of sexual misconduct, which he's denied. He continues to be a very divisive figure, something of a pizza populist, you might say. Late last month, I took the subway out to Coney Island to attend Portnoy's One Bite Pizza Festival. It was raining cats and dogs. It was absolutely soaked. There was a threat that it might be canceled, but at the end of the day, 6,000 people came out, some from as far as the UK. Ticket price starting around $150 for basically a music festival for pizza. Three, two, one, pizza At the center of this was an inflatable Statue of Liberty, but instead of a torch, she had a pizza slice pointing vertically towards the sky. And absolutely every possible available surface, there was Dave Portnoy's face, a cartoon version of Portnoy, like a ridiculous cheesy cross between, you know, a rained out music festival, a drunken tailgate, and also something like a Trump rally because there were subtle politics going on all over the place. He runs out like a rock star to cheering and welcomes everybody, but very quickly gets into a rant about the media, particularly the Washington Post. I'd be remiss not to say fuck the Washington Post. Absolute fucking clowns. 
he's undeniably charismatic. He's funny in the way that sarcastic, crass friend is funny. I think there's something about the way that he totally abandons any pretensions to objectivity that's really appealing. Pizza is something we all enjoy, and I think it's something that we all feel we know. And similarly, I think many of us are slightly doubtful of the expertise of food critics. And so there's something about just the honesty and the clarity of his reactions that's really appealing. Let's have some fun, eat some pizza again. He's definitely full of himself, but also kind of appealing. Portnoy's videos are surprisingly engaging. He's not a critic exactly. He's more like a judge. He really reacts to pizza rather than reviewing it. He'll take this bite and then he'll give this ridiculously precise score. Despite the laddishness of all of this, this is really serious business. It's kind of a pizza yelp for the whole country. There was a pizzeria recently in New Jersey that got a 9.4, which is absolutely unheard of, which quickly sold out its entire menu for days. Equally importantly, a bad review can lead to a flood of negative reviews by Barstool fans who are known as stoolies. One pizzeria in Massachusetts, where Portnoy had a very public confrontation with a pizzeria owner, was then you know besieged by negative reviews on online platforms. The attendees of the festival were predictable Barstool fans, young men, but also there were lots of people who were definitely there more for the pizza than for Portnoy. There's no one else that does it, <laughs> you know, like to that extent. Like there are people that are trying to copy him or whatever, but uh, yeah, I appreciate what he does. I love it. Yeah. Have you followed the controversy around him, like you know, various accusations of like misconduct and things like that? Yeah, I mean, I guess. Yeah. Is that? What do you think about that? I mean, I'm not looking at him for moral guidance. You know what I mean? Tells it like it is, and yeah. people don't like that because we live in a fucking soft world right now. That's what I think. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I'm curious, you know, what do you, I don't know, what would change your mind about him? I mean, do you think it's, or do you think it's just irrelevant? I think we're here for the pizza, man. Getting a little too political, that's, that's what's wrong with everything around here. Just enjoy the pizza, have fun today, and the guy's not guilty of anything, let him, let him live his life. Yeah. The pizza was really good, for one, and also remarkably diverse. The beauty of pizza is that it's a food that everyone has access to, that everyone can have a legitimate opinion about. It's also, importantly, in a city like New York, it's affordable. So maybe the advent of a pizza populist, someone a bit Trumpy, whose coarse charisma is impossible for restaurants to ignore, should not be surprising. Even if Portnoy, like American culture writ large, is short on decency, he's a pretty good guide to a decent slice. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Don't forget, our new subscription service, Economist Podcasts Plus, launches soon. If you're not already a subscriber to The Economist, you'll need to sign up. But hurry to get that half-price deal. Follow the link in the show notes or just search for Economist Podcasts. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Tune 
traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.